perspective. And they did exactly the same thing with this, this alcohol one. Uh, if anything, it was even more tendacious because they said, you know, do you find, do you find it less appealing? But do you think it also makes it look more socially um, unacceptable? Now that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? That's, that's yeah. the, that's the outcome that they want. They want alcohol. In this case, it was bottles of vodka. They want them not just to be unappealing, but to be socially unacceptable. And this wasn't to kids. This is to young adults, 18 to 35 year olds. Um, so that in itself is telling. Hello and welcome to the Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by my co-conspirator in all anti-nanny state activities, Christopher Snowden, who is the head of lifestyle economics at the Institute of Economic Affairs. And in this week's episode, we will be discussing the latest developments in the wonderful world of the British nanny state. First off, let's go to one of, I think, our shared favorite topics and something that we've both written about recently in the form of research papers, that's vaping and tobacco harm reduction. Uh, So I guess starting off, uh, Chris, what's coming up in the world of tobacco control? We've obviously got a lot of bills that are being discussed or a lot of strategy papers and things like that. Can we expect going down the line in the next few months some more crazy harebrained ideas around tobacco control or actually do you think that we're minded to see some positive progress on things like vaping for example? I think it's quite possible you'll see a bit of both actually so there's a tobacco control plan which is due to come out later this year the government has kind of hived off some of the responsibilities of a guy called Javid Khan who used to run Bernardo's and they've got him in as one of these kind of you know, independent outside blue sky thinkers who's supposed to come up with some dazzling new policies. Um, and he is going to publish his findings in May. But according to media reports in the last few days, he is minded to propose a levy on the tobacco industry of tens of millions of pounds. Uh, the, and this is something that the um, the anti-smoking lobby have been calling for for quite some time. In fact, all the things he's mentioned are basically things that the anti-smoking lobby has been calling for. This guy, there's no reason to think he was going to suddenly come up with something nobody else had thought of. So what you tend to get with these supposedly independent reviews, you saw the same thing with um, Henry Dimbleby's review of the food industry, is they just parrot the orthodox public health narrative and put forward policies that these guys have been proposing for ages. So action on smoke and health haven't got that many policies to propose in reality because the government's capitulated to everything they've wanted for years and years now quite quickly. So plain packaging was the last big one. And um, since then, they can't really say that the industry lures people in to start smoking anymore you know they made it very clear that packaging was the final frontier it's the industry's last way of marketing to people now i personally don't see packaging as a form of marketing per se but anyway that that was passed some years ago now and so bearing in mind that nobody under the age of 18 has ever seen anything approaching a cigarette advertisement it's very hard to say that the industry is has any means of luring new smokers in so what do you do well they've proposed um health warnings on individual cigarettes which is a pretty balmy idea that some country will probably do it sooner or later that idea has been around for about 20 30 years actually it's a real scrape of the barrel that one the industry levy is quite tempting because people think well it's the industry who pays for it but you know the normal individuals won't do and these companies got plenty of money so it's like a windfall tax kind of idea problem there is that the 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 government can't really put a windfall tax on 
these companies because they're not all based in the UK. So how do you put a windfall tax on a company based in, in Switzerland? You can't do really. What what would happen in practice would be you'd say, well, you know, JTI sell 20% of the cigarettes in the, in the country. Therefore, we're going to get them to pay 20% of the surcharge. But that would have to go on the cigarette. It would just be another form of excise tax. The Treasury knows this. They said that years ago, and they basically dismissed the idea on that basis. If you want to put sin taxes up on cigarettes even more, and they're already on an escalator, just say that. Don't pretend it's some kind of uh, industry levy. So there's that, and there's a possibility of raising the, the smoking age to 21. As for vaping, he might look at some ways of liberalizing the market, bear in mind that the main regulation we have of e-cigarettes is from the EU. But I don't know. I think it's more likely it'll be the usual one-way ratchet against smoking. Yeah, there's something quite crazy about being the, the tobacco control organizations and having basically running out of ideas. I kind of envy them in some ways that they've mm-hmm. got everything they've wanted for so long that they're struggling to come up with anything new. The industry or the polluter pays idea strikes me as particularly absurd. I'm glad you mentioned that it strikes seemingly the treasury as absurd as well, because for all intents and purposes, the polluter already pays over and above the social cost, quote unquote, of smoking. I mean, I know you're well aware of various net cost benefit studies on smoking and and factoring in things like passing away earlier from taking out less in state pension, etc. So if anything, you want to be purely Pagovian about this, then you you might argue for a a smoking subsidy in order to uh, to reduce the national debt. Of course, that's not something that I imagine either of us support. Uh, But going on to some of these these vaping and and tobacco harm reduction measures, because we've got the the kind of gist of the bad things that are likely down the line. What sort of things did you look at in your your recent IEA paper, uh, Vapor Trails, along with Victoria Euston, I believe uh, you co-authored it with? Well, the, the basic gist of the paper was that we need to get away from the precautionary principle in lots of sectors, actually, but in particularly in this area, it's a very good example of where the precautionary principle is disastrous and, and would have been disastrous if it had been tried globally because you'd never allow e-cigarettes on the market and if you never have e-cigarettes on the market you don't have any evidence to show what happens when people use them um both in terms of the health effects but also in terms of you know are they more likely to switch away from smoking of course we know from lots of countries experience that people are much more likely to switch um away from smoking if they vape but point is that evidence wouldn't exist if we had a precautionary principle and said well these things might still be dangerous we don't know what's going to happen 50 years down the line and so on now that applies to lots of sectors in in practice me and victoria we suggest that um we have something closer to an innovation principle where you uh you basically treat excessive caution as recklessness which it does amount to the same thing when you're dealing with substitutes for something that is very dangerous um more broadly what could be done to well, both foster innovation in this space, bearing in mind that e-cigarettes are the, not the last safer nicotine product that's going to be on the market. Um, but also, how do you exploit you know, e-cigarettes for all they're worth? Bearing in mind that public understanding of the relative risks has gone backwards in recent years. The so-called Ivali outbreak in America in 2019, where you had dozens of people uh, dying, uh, usually at quite a young age, from contaminated THC vape cartridges, which had nothing to do with normal nicotine vaping, but the the two issues got very much and quite deliberately mangled in the popular telling. Um, People's ignorance is is worse than it was 10 years ago about e-cigarettes, and that's pretty damning indictment to the public health authorities. To be fair, in the UK, public health authorities have generally tried to counter this misinformation, but they haven't 
been able to do so against this tsunami of junk science and, and scaremongering, mainly coming from um, America. Um, so what do we do in, in strict policy terms? It's you basically need to repeal the worst of the EU regulation, mm-hmm. most of which doesn't most of which doesn't even have any particular rationale to begin with. It was just legislating for the sake of it. So we don't need to have the levels on nicotine in, in fluid that we've got, for example. A lot of people who are switching from cigarettes or thinking of switching from cigarettes need a bit more bang in the uh, in in the fluid there's nothing dangerous about having a bit more nicotine in the fluid per se the size of the bottles you know ridiculously limited to 10 mils doesn't don't need to have that it's not a massive issue but it's a single issue plastics issue um uh, you've got the the tank size various little fiddly things that to most people won't sound that significantly but if you put them all together you're making the category less appealing uh, and none of it serves any purpose none of it's done any good so we might as well get rid of it and the government supposedly is looking for benefits from brexit here's you know here's one good but perhaps relatively small example yeah i think for me alongside the the product regulation side of things that you mentioned the absolute key one is being able to communicate the health claims on packaging, being able to walk into a vape shop, see uh, a vape product or indeed uh, another reduced risk product and pick that up. And it says right there on the package, Public Health England or or now OHID says this is at least 95% less harmful. Because as you mentioned, the misinformation is getting worse. Uh, And among smokers, I doubt very much that, you know, a, a public health England blog post from two years ago is, is going to be read <laughs> yeah. by the vast majority of, uh, of UK smokers, whereas, of course, plenty of them do go into your local vape shop or, or they browse online to get uh, an alternative. And if they see that there and they see, you know, the government stamp of approval on it or whatnot, they might think twice about some of those attitudes that they previously yeah. held. I mean, the, the, the marketing restrictions in general should be got rid of. Uh, it's. I mean, Scotland, unfortunately, is going in the other direction. They're currently consulting on on extending the EU's already very extensive ban on advertising, so it covers every possible medium. These companies should be allowed to advertise. I think it would be a good thing if you could have like little cards in cigarette packs in which the tobacco industry could direct their smoking customers to their their alternative, you know, safer portfolio. And obviously it would be a good thing if vape shops are allowed to say the same thing as Public Health England. It says, well, Public Health England doesn't exist anymore, but, you know, the, the same thing as the Office for um, Health Improvements. It's pretty absurd that in many respects it is illegal for vape manufacturers and retailers to essentially repeat the government line on e-cigarettes. I think from the ASI's side of things, we recently released a paper, uh, me and Mark Oates, one of our fellows, co-wrote it. And it looked at something you've mentioned already, the kind of obvious political win that can come from reform in this area. You've got the three big issues at the moment, cost of living, benefits of Brexit and levelling up and reform of regulations in this area absolutely nails all three, you know, you've got yep. higher smoking rates in the north of England. If you reduce those to the levels of, say, London, the southeast, then you could tackle the the public health side of things, if that's your objective, and the, the health inequality side. You could really help people save a lot of money as well, because something mm-hmm. that perhaps isn't necessarily appreciated by people who, who don't vape or don't use uh, heated tobacco or, or pouches or whatnot is that it is way, way cheaper for you. I think Ash estimates the average annual spend is something close to £2,000 and for vaping it's more yep. like 1000 so lots of if very that, easy wins yeah. there yeah if that exactly if, you, if you're smart about it then you can you can spend far far I, less I, on it, I would have thought about three or £400 yeah it depends Personally. on some estimates I mean when, when we looked at it um, 
vaping came out as the best in terms of the the biggest bang for your buck cost reduction but yeah. all three of the alternatives were massive uh, increases in your disposable income sometimes upwards of of 10% and if you're looking for a policy that i mean smokers tend to be on the lower end of the income spectrum as well if i remember correctly mm -hmm. if you're really looking to target something in a liberal way that puts money back in people's pockets without hectoring them or or, or banning them from using their, their chosen uh, product then this is the way to do it but i think moving mm -hmm. on to uh, another nanny state story that i personally have seen a lot of TikTok rage about uh, it's the introduction of mandatory calorie counts on menus now i know we discussed this i think about a year ago on this podcast when it was still being debated and discussed, but they've recently come into effect now. Um, and for people who didn't know about the policy, some aren't particularly happy, others obviously uh, very happy they don't have to use their calorie counting apps anymore whenever they go to restaurants. And I'm interested to know, Chris, which kind of camp you sit on this, because there seems to be two kind of free market schools of thought. The one is that, well, you're just providing more information to consumers, uh, and this is unambiguously uh, a good thing. And the other one seems to be that actually this is kind of ruining enjoyment for some people of food, um, especially uh, for people who potentially have more disordered eating patterns, um, and they're not able to go out to their favorite restaurants anymore. Do you say that you align yourself with one of those views more than the other? Uh, on balance, I'm, I'm of the former opinion, because I mm. do think it is quite useful information. And there's no reason why the public shouldn't have it in a simple kind of discreet form. I was in a pub a few days ago with a, a few people and the calorie counts actually triggered quite a, quite a conversation. Everybody was quite surprised how many calories there were. I mean, more than a thousand in most of the things people were eyeing up. Um, as part of, you know, having an informed consumer I, th I think it's hard to argue against. However, yeah. there are two perfectly reasonable opposing views. One is that they don't, despite my conversation in the pub, they don't seem to make any difference. And there's been quite a lot of studies in America in particular where they've had these kind of um, mandatory calorie laws for some time that it makes no difference on average to how much people consume. So from a public health point of view, in terms of the consequences, it's a bit of a waste of time and to some extent, I guess, a waste of money insofar as it does cost these chains a bit of money to work out how many calories in the meals. The other, which you've alluded to, is eating disorders, which is kind of a, it's a kind of unintended consequence that not everybody would have perhaps predicted. But people with eating disorders, eating disorder charities have been against this from day one. They're really quite angry about it. And you can understand why, because part of recovering from anorexia in particular is to stop thinking about calories all the time and these menus obviously are going to remind people about calories all the time now what exactly the consequences of that are i'm not sure you know i, I don't think there's any evidence showing that in places which, which have these mandatory calorie counts prevalence of eating disorders or severity of eating disorders gets worse either i mean to be fair I and mean, if we're going to look at it from the point of view of evidence but it's an unintended consequence. You know, it's possible also that people will, you know, eat, eat less healthy food in, in, in some respects. I mean, they might eat, eat too little food for a startup, but they might eat less healthy food or they might switch from beer to spirits, for example, is one possible unintended consequence. I don't know. I mean, it would be nice to have the yeah. evidence on it. I still think, despite that, that it's not a bad idea. I would just wonder if there's a better way of going about it, whether you can have a QR code on the menu or something for people who want to know the information. But perhaps yeah. that wouldn't really achieve the objective. I don't know. 
it, it does seem like some restaurants are offering as options your know, kind of calorie free menus, which is allowed for in the legislation. But there's a few a few things that I yeah. say on this. The first, um, a, another kind of objection more from a, a business rather than necessarily pro market standpoint is the associated menu costs with this if you're a restaurant and mm. you're changing your daily special then you need to recalculate the calorie count on that and update your menus accordingly every time you you change it so it's just extra work but that doesn't and, uh, i don't think that happens very much in practice because the government's mm-hmm. excluded all but the biggest yeah. chains and they don't yeah, that's very have true. daily specials they, very much yeah so they they did kind of realize that this could potentially yeah. be an issue i think it's something that the treasury objected to at the time the, the other two things that the first is on the the kind of disordered eating side of things just a, a an anecdote a friend of mine um a few weeks ago we were ordering delivery together and i got up the menu and said oh do you want anything from i think it was um wagamamas or something like that and then handed them the phone uh and as soon as they saw the calorie counts basically turned the phone away and said no i, I can't i can't look at this this is oh, not really? you know yeah so I, I think whilst you're completely right a lot of the the kind of strong evidence that this would say cause uh, an uptick in eating disorder prevalence i i don't think is there either and more work needs to be done certainly from just a, a pure causing distress side i think that you know the, the eating disorder charities that are against this have a point and and on the information side of things i'm in two minds about this in a lot of ways because i agree you know all other things being equal more information more informed consumption is better but there are some things that we as consumers buy purchase use that sometimes we explicitly don't want certain bits of information and part of not having that information or part of consumption enjoyable consumption is not having that information so the example that i go to is let's say you're ordering a a book from amazon you don't want in that product description the uh entire plot of that book kind of set out for you right because it ruins the book because you, you want to find out what it is and i feel like there's some sort of parallel at least when it comes to eating maybe not necessarily when you're you're going to your supermarket and getting your well in my case ready meals for the week i'm not much of a cook myself but when you're going to a restaurant part of it is that you explicitly don't want to think about the the kind of health effects of what you're consuming because it's a treat or you're going out and it's a, a special occasion and i just think that's something that needs to be kind of factored in as well but i'm interested in your thoughts on that whether you think that's a, a, a fair parallel between the book and the uh, the food i think that if you suddenly feel worse about having a Weatherspoon's fry it because you know it has 1200 calories in it then you are actually factoring in properly all the cost and benefits of your consumption mm. and that prior to that you were living in a state of what you might call blissful ignorance perhaps but still nevertheless mm. ignorance and therefore less likely to be able to make a genuinely uh, informed free and open um, purchase so I absolutely agree with you that some people may enjoy, um, you know, having a, a big blissful ignorance. <laughs> yeah, but people, well, people may enjoy having a big, uh, you know, high calorie meal a bit less when they know it is high calorie. But um, I mean, there's a reason for that, isn't it? And that's people don't yeah. want to eat too many calories. And I don't want to make the public health case for this particularly, but I mean, it's I think it's the least by far the least objectionable part of the whole obesity strategy. Um, it's not coercive in any real sense, um, certainly to the to the consumer. And notwithstanding this issue with eating disorders, I don't really have a problem with it. And I will be interested to see what actually happens in terms of, you know, the actual effect on people's consumption patterns. Because I don't find it at all unfeasible 
that some people will change what they eat. I, I dare say it won't have any effect on obesity as such. I mean, obviously, people don't mostly eat out. I mean, people mainly consume from supermarkets, and supermarket produce has had calorie labels on it for years. And as far as I know, that's made no difference to obesity. Well, keeping on the subject of labeling, something that you blogged about recently is this uh, study that came out from the University of Stirling, and it looked at the potential effects of graphic, graphic health warnings on alcohol. So, you know, pictures saying drinking kills or drinking can harm your liver and whatnot. And unsurprisingly, the result of this study was that young people are likely to, to find alcohol less attractive if you plaster a, a big graphic warning label over it. Uh, what do you make of this research? Do you think that it was uh, a, a fair finding? Do you think that that translates into behavioural change if, say, we introduce these on uh, on a policy level, or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Well, it's just the same rubbish as was produced when the likes of the University of Stirling, because there's a whole load of nanny state academics up there, were lobbying for plain packaging. Um, in fact, I think one of the authors is was one of the main guys who was producing this junk science about plain packaging. And it was exactly the same methodology. You just get a bunch of people, often kids, in a in a room, or more likely you just put out an online survey, uh, and you show them a, a normal pack of cigarettes, and you show them a pack of cigarettes that's been deliberately made to look as unattractive as possible, and you say, which of these do you find more attractive? And, of course, people say, I find the unattractive one more unattractive. And they did exactly the same thing with this this alcohol one the the conclusion that is then drawn from that is that people will drink more responsibly or they'll drink less or maybe not start drinking at all if you have graphic warnings on bottles of alcohol and of course that doesn't follow in the same way as it didn't follow with plain packaging people can say they find a pack of cigarettes less appealing in all sorts of different ways doesn't mean they're going to stop smoking if they're already smoking doesn't mean they're not going to start if they haven't started smoking and the evidence with plain packaging is actually it hasn't made any difference whatsoever and there was never any credible reason to think it would do because the people's you know stated preferences in these fairly meaningless online surveys don't tell you anything about people's behavior because apart from anything else people don't start drinking or smoking primarily or even partly because of the packaging just as a a sort of aside i'm aware that the the plural of anecdotes is not data but we've seen university of sterling filled with 90 state public health academics and we spoke earlier about how ash scotland seemed to be leading the charge in the kind of anti-vaping crusade um, to the detriment of at least some of their colleagues in uh, in action on smoking and health England. Do you think that there is a, a specific problem in Scotland with nanny statism in a way that, that's maybe even worse than it is in England? And, and if so, why do you think that might be maybe the, the context of various um, problem behaviours and, and higher uh, public health negative consequences in, in Scotland? Or I, Well, I think there's probably a few reasons. I mean, Part of it would be, uh, to some extent, cultural or even religious, or at least originally religiously inspired. You know, the kind of that that Protestant ethic is even stronger in Scotland than it is in England. Um, mm. But more recently, I mean, you've got a, a devolved government that only has so many levers it can pull, and so it will tend to pull them all. So if it has the authority to ban all e-cigarette advertising, it's going to do it just to show that it can do something, right? Same yeah. with minimum pricing. It, the, the SNP can't increase the rate of duty on alcohol but it can introduce as it turns out minimum pricing so they've done it um and you also have quite a bad sock puppet state in scotland um in which you have a lot of 
pressure groups directly funded by the government. They, and Ash Scotland being one example, Alcohol Focus Scotland being another one, you know, either totally or very nearly totally funded by the government. And they have a lot of time on their hands and quite a bit of money in which to propose various nanny state measures. They're not going to propose liberalisation, partly, again, because the Scottish government can't actually liberalise things. Right? So it's, it's, it's very limiting what it can do. And what it can do, generally speaking, is make things worse rather than better from a, from a libertarian perspective. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there are, there are various different reasons. But, yeah, there, there are a number of universities which have turned out to be kind of the axis of evil with the nanny state. Stirling is one of them. Bath is um, another one. Uh, Liverpool is quite bad in some respects. And you, you tend to get a lot of this kind of rubbish, advocacy-driven so-called science from those particular places. But yeah, you're right. Scotland is a little bit worse than England, but England isn't exactly great. <laughs> yeah, the, the political kind of differentiation point is not one that I considered before. This kind of, well, if you only have a limited amount of things that you can do to show how you're, you'd be different from central government in Westminster, then you're bloody well going to do them, right? That's a really interesting point. Exactly. So they dropped the drink driving limit. They banned three for two deals, buy one, get one free deals on, on alcohol. They introduced minimum price. None of this stuff has had made any difference as, as far as anyone can see, but it's stuff that they can do. The stuff that might work potentially, it's difficult to think of many things that fall into that category, they can't do. Um, mm. So they don't bother looking into them. <laughs> No, the, the mention of buy one, get one free gives me the opportunity to beautifully segue into the uh, reports, at least last month, that the government was in the light of the, the cost of living crisis, considering dropping some of its uh, anti-obesity measures on banning buy one, get one free offers. The latest I've heard from that is that maybe it is still going to go ahead after all, and there hasn't been any sort of rollback as was first claim do you think that there's likely just in general and, and also on this this specific policy likely to be any second thoughts and the like of rising uh rising food prices rising inflation uh pressure on pay packets etc or do these people just not care i genuinely don't know i mean it's going to be a very mm. bad look for the government to be banning food discounts effectively in mm. october which is more or less exactly when inflation is predicted to peak at about 9%, and it'd probably be double figures, I, I imagine, because inflation estimates have always been underestimates in recent times. Um, yeah, it's a terrible look. I, I think it depends a bit on how much the, the media get on the case and how much people like ourselves get on the case and say, you know, what are you doing? I mean, let, let the public know what's going on. There's a tendency mm-hmm. in public health for things to come in and then people discuss them, right? So when menthol cigarettes yeah. were banned, for example... It was, you know, that was given a leading time of about six years. It was an EU ban passed in something like 2015, and it didn't happen until 2020, 2021. And no one really knew about it, including people who smoke menthol cigarettes. One day they were just off the shelves. Mm. And then it would be the big story in the newspapers. The EU's banned menthol cigarettes. It was too late to do anything about it by then. And it could well be the same with this, unless people make a bit of noise about it. But this clearly is going to cost consumers quite a bit of money. It's difficult to say how much money, because we don't know how retailers are going to adjust Obviously, if you're selling, you know, a buy one, get one free deal, you can just sell it at half price instead, right? Now, right, in yeah. practice, you don't because part of the point is to sell more of it. You need to get the stock shifted. You're, you're getting a cheaper deal from wholesalers if you're buying a large amount, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of the little oldie uh, method of, of, of retailing. So it's not as simple as you halve the price, but you can still cut the price. You can still find 
means by which to um, to get rid of surplus stock effectively. So we don't know what, what it's going to cost people, but it is definitely going to cost people something. Public Health England knew this years ago when they first proposed this. If you look at the document from, I think, 2015, in which they proposed a ban on multi-buy deals for sugary products specifically, um, they noted that in 20. 20- 2008 to about 2011, when you had the, the financial crisis, the recession, cost of living problems, even back then, right? That was cost of living crisis 10 years ago, um, that people turned to deals like bog offs in order to cope. They called it a coping mechanism in the Public Health England report. Now, by 2015, inflation was quite low and it wasn't expected to rise again. So they didn't seem to care about people needing a coping mechanism anymore. Well, mm. people needed a lot more now than they did even in 2008 actually so the, the implication of that is as long as people aren't thinking too much about the cost of living then they can kind of get this through without anyone noticing and it'll yeah. be okay even though it will have exactly the same bottom line or you know, impact on on our wallets it's just that we might be a bit more able to weather it um so that makes it okay that's a a depressing thought. Well, thank you very much indeed for listening to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor. I've been uh, the host and head of research at the ASI and very pleased to be joined by my good friend, Christopher Snowden, the head of lifestyle economics at the IEA. If you like what you've heard, then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider. And we will see you next week for more banter analysis. Thanks for listening.